Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Media Voices. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. And I'm Peter Houston. And we won't have Esther with us for the entire season, unfortunately, because she is off with a uh, baby-related situation, <laughs> I think you could say. <laughs> but we are compensating for that by having a series of some of the best and brightest guests who we've ever had on the show. So, Peter, what is Big Noises about? What is this series about? We <laughs> love the interviews we do, but sometimes we get you know into themes that are kind of... You know, buzzwordy if mm-hmm. that, for want of a better word and I think that what I wanted to do when we knew that Esther wasn't going to be here was just try and shake things up a bit and talk to people that have got real wild <laughs> opinions about how this works that's, I think that's what that's the word isn't it opinions because I, I mean yeah. I, I've come off the back of a couple of conferences recently where it's all just been look how great we are there's no problems all this kind of stuff yeah, and absolutely. I think that we don't get progress we don't actually talk about important things that might make a difference unless you get people who are opinionated to drive the conversation forward so we've called it big noises because yes. we, want, we want people to make a big noise and they are big noises in their own right <laughs> Um, But the idea is we take, you know, one person every episode and we just let them tell us what they think is potentially wrong (laughs) with the media industry or what is right. Yeah, I think that, yeah, it's really about kind of addressing misconceptions, whether that's even, you know, the the nice ones that help us sleep well at night, like, oh, we're doing brilliant stuff, like, oh, content is king, or it's the ones that sort of definitely need challenging. (laughs) Well, that's a good segue. Speaking of that, who is our first guest? Neil Thackeray. So Neil was our boss uh, years ago at a media briefing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favourite times of the, the day was when, when Neil, I don't know whether he got bored or what it was, <laughs> but he'd leave his office and he'd come and he'd sit with the three of us and uh, he'd just like ask questions and, and we'd get into some rambling discussion about the rights and wrongs of media strategy and it was brilliant it was the, possibly the best part of that job to be honest it was great yeah so that, if anyone's ever wondered where the media voices ethos came from <laughs> I think that's probably it. that was the genesis of it uh, so I talked to Neil he was on his yacht in Sardinia he said <laughs> the weather was horrendous and he was booking himself a hotel oh god um, <laughs> But we had a great chat. And his starting point was basically content is not king. That's mm. a, that's something that needs shooting down. Uh, but he also talks about what he sees as a failure of leadership in some media organisations and how uh, the investment community is culpable in some of that. So yeah, it was wide ranging and full on and I loved it. It was one of the hardest edits I've had to do, not just because <laughs> A, I had to sound cancel a bunch of seagulls, which I've never had to do on a podcast edit. Uh, well, no, we, we talked about all sorts and I, I think in that sense, that's exactly what we want to get from this from this season. Before we get into that, we do need to take a moment to pay the bills and say thanks to Glide Publishing, who are going to be supporting this episode and the rest of the season. So if you don't know Glide yet, it's a content management service for publishers, which means you don't need to get involved in the software and having to spend time, money, resources, reinventing a CMS over and over again. We hear horror stories about CMSs all the time. So now services like Glide do all the content management for publishers of all sizes, so you can just get on with running titles, sites, and being the success that you deserve to be. And there's no need to get roped into building any of that back-end tech. You can just use their cloud services and away you go. So if you want to know more, you can have a look at gpp.io and give Glide a check. And thanks again to them for their support for this episode and the season. 
Yeah, lots to get through with this interview with Neil. It was a really hard time editing it down to time. But to begin with, Peter, you actually asked him to, to take us through a potted history of his career. And I was a little bit disappointed to note that I didn't even get a name check. Sad. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, okay. So I've, I've worked I've worked in the media industry for about 40 years, I suppose. And I've worked for large media companies and small media companies. And, uh, and in the midst of all that, uh, I met a guy called Rory Brown. And he and I started talking about the media industry and found that we kind of, largely speaking, agreed what was wrong with it and says about building a business. And that business uh, was like a grubby um, startup funded by Rory and I. And over time, we bought assets flipped a business from being a publishing business to being a data business. Although I exited four years ago, they've just traded it again for a number which is reported to be north of 250 million. So I can't tell you if that's true because I have deliberately haven't asked them. But um, So that was kind of the journey. And I've been the CEO of lots of businesses, bought and sold lots of businesses. Uh, and for a while, I wrote a column, uh, as you might remember, Peter, uh, for our startup business, The Media Briefing, about the state of the media industry. So I've given quite a lot of thought to what's wrong with it. And there's a lot of things wrong with it. There's an awful lot of um, uh, poor quality thinking being conducted by those <laughs> human beings. So I, as I said just now, I've been to many, many conferences and organized a fair few. And there is not one of them where at some point during the proceedings, uh, somebody hasn't said, content is king. Uh, and if you're very lucky, someone from the back of the hall will shout, and queen. Uh, and everybody will nod sagely uh, as if this is a statement of <laughs> undeniable truth. Most of media is not content. Free media on the internet, which a lot of it is, is not contained within anything. In fact, it is normally open to the prey of anybody who wants to come and steal it, whether it be the search engines or Facebook or or, or plagiarists, or, or we might talk about AI later, or AI, AI machines scraping content and using it. So, so I think that initial premise is wrong. And what that, the reason it matters is it kind of drives media owners to think that what they should be doing online is trying to work out how to do what they did offline in a digital world. Uh, and one of the reasons they think like that is because they still think about content. The second objection I have to it is the second word, and there are only two words, um, uh, which is the king thing. And, and it's not because I'm anti-royalist particularly, but if, me, if media owners really think that what they produce, the information, data, pictures, whatever it is, is king, explain to me why most of the publishers I see on the web give it away for free, so they, they therefore consider it is not worth anything, uh, and that their ads are their web pages are drowning in terrible quality advertising, uh, which is uh, spammy, selling cryptocurrency stuff, uh, is full of um, uh, you know dodgy get-rich-quick schemes and, and whatever. But apparently your content, which it isn't, is king, which you clearly don't think that it is, but you still say this guff. Is it because they're chasing the money, and it's not, and then I don't by that I don't mean revenue necessarily. I mean investment. Is it is it because they're trying to impress the VCs or whatever? That's certainly true, uh, and therefore we must make the you know, the VCs and the investors um, equally culpable for falling for this guff, must we? There's a there's a great story. Years ago, I was the CEO of a magazine called the Industry Standard, uh, or, or the European version of it. 
and we launched it in the UK based on a, uh, a US uh, version, which had grown from nothing to $200 million in turnover, and I think still holds the record for being the highest paginating weekly magazine ever, ever produced. Uh, and uh, we used to write a lot of stories about you know, the idiots in the investing world and how they could get you know, floored by somebody who says, you know, if the market's worth a billion, you know, 1% of a billion is a lot of money, we're all going to get rich, kind of thing, on the back of a napkin. And there was one guy who, very much this is in the late 90s, who went around the Californian VCs showing them uh, a demonstration on a, on a PC of uh, 42 frames a second, full screen size video, delivered via a twisted copper pair down the phone line. And although we take all this stuff for granted now, back in the late 90s, there was no broadband. And if you remember, you used to download little bits of video, which were kind of like this big in the center of your screen, and it would take an hour to get 10 seconds of that, uh, on, the, on your dial-up. So this was like the holy grail. Like, this is fantastic, guys. You know, it's amazing. This is going to change the world. We're all going to be billionaires. Uh, and he wanted for seed funding $30 million, uh, which he found really easily because he had this great demonstration of how it worked. Uh, and he took some premises and then he did what many people did then. Uh, the first thing he did was he threw a party, a launch party. Which is not unreasonable. When he decided he better have some music at this launch party, so he hired, as you do, the Who. Uh, <laughs> this party cost 10 million bucks, right? Uh, he then ran off with the other 20, never to be seen again. And it turned out it was a two-bit <laughs> con man who had just thought, these people are so stupid, they will buy anything. And all he had was a demonstration. He had some preloaded video on a laptop. Mm. He had a cable. And he plugged it in, which didn't do anything, and just press play. Okay, so that's what's wrong with it all. How do you fix it? How, well, I mean, let's go back to, to when, when you and Rory started uh, the media briefing, or briefing media. What, what, was your, what was your strategy? How are you going to do it differently? Most media companies are platform-centric. If they say they're in the magazine business or the news business or they're in the TV business or the video business or radio or, or exhibitions or whatever it is. So they tend to be platform-centric and they start from, from, uh, from, that, uh, from that premise. And we always thought that if you picked a platform and then put product on it, you were leaving a lot of money on the table, one. And secondly, it constrained your product development because it, and that it meant that you fell into that trap that we talked about before. Of, try, of simply repeating the same thing, whether or not the customer really wants it. So we had this mantra which said, our business is going to be user-centric, platform neutral, but digitally underpinned. So there was no need to panic and say, oh, Lord, if we own a print product, you know, it's going to die. We must run around like a headless chicken. I mean, then we would say, well, hey, why don't we do something really radical and take those print products and make them better? And why don't we then build some new product for that community of uh, that community of users, which solves a different set of problems, which may require a different platform? Uh, and uh, yeah, of course, we'll publish what we write in the paper online. Why wouldn't you? Uh, but we're not going to give it away for free. You know, it's just a different way of accessing the same thing. But let's not pretend that that's a product development. That's simply adding an additional platform to the way in which we distribute our content. The most important thing to do is to say what are the problems that these customers have? Where is the friction in their lives or in their business? And what product can we produce which will ease that friction? Uh, and if it eases that friction, it will um, 
uh, inevitably have an economic value. So that was kind of the insight. And then I, I kind of, I've, I've been showing this diagram to people for 20 years, but um, I don't have it in front of me, so I'll do it through interpretive mime, if you'll forgive me. Um, so let's imagine you've got a two-by-two two axis, and on one axis you've got uh, how critical is this information that I am producing to a decision being taken by the end user. And on the other axis you've got uh, how complex or difficult is this for the user to assemble themselves? If the answer mm. to that question is it's not that important to them and it's not very difficult to assemble, I would argue news is probably in that category. It is highly likely that you're only going to live on advertising revenue, and we know there are all kinds of all kinds of problems with that. Uh, if on the other extreme you're up at the top right of the uh, the graph where you're delivering something which is highly critical uh, to a decision being taken which might be you know price comparison information or you know technical data or uh, whatever it might be uh, and it's very difficult for people to assemble themselves then uh, you could charge a premium price for it to the user. In fact, they probably won't even care what the price is that they charge. And so some of that is about utility, and some of it is clearly about distinctiveness. And that's one of the things that's gone wrong with mainstream media, is that it's lost its distinctiveness apart from political flag waving, arguably with the exception of private eye who have never really bothered with anything digitally in the distribution of their content and have successfully maintained their paid circulation. Why is that? Because it's very distinctive. It's unlike anything else that is that is available. And that's not true of most other mainstream media who seem to think that just turning the Ronio machine, if you're old enough to remember Ronio machines, the spitting out stuff, um, is, um, is sufficient Um to be able to create a compelling product. So that was our basic insight. And that was how we were able to evolve the business from being you know, grubby online startup to being a newspaper and magazine publisher to being a database. A lot of what you're saying there sounds like a really good validation for why content is king, though. I, well, I thought we'd already debunked uh, we'd already debunked that because if, even if you believe it, I mean, I, I'd accept it's a bit, you know, it's a, it's a construct, isn't it, to say that the content is king phrase is entirely redundant. Uh, but I do not believe that even when people say it, that they, well, I'm sure they believe it, but they don't act like they believe it. Look, let's look at what media companies have done. Take any of the major news groups that exist in the UK or even around the world. What have they been doing for the last, since the internet uh, started to bite them? They've been taking cost out of their business. Uh, I think Reach, the old mirror group, does it about every three months, right? And and who is it that they get rid of? It's the people who make yeah. the content. So, yeah. but, and and where did they start? This is what this is where one of the problems happened. Let's imagine you were producing aircraft, Peter. I mean, God help us all. But you know, let's imagine you were an aircraft uh, manufacturer, and you decided you needed to cut costs. We'll come back to why that's a stupid idea in the first place. How about if you began by getting rid of the quality control department? That would be so dumb that everybody would say you are an idiot. And yet, when the media companies decided they wanted to cut costs, who were the first people they got rid of? The subspecies. Sure. Yeah. Now, admittedly, you're not going to kill somebody by producing a crap newspaper or magazine, but that, unfortunately, is the business that, that we're in. And then when you get further, 
And you keep that because the revenue, as you make the product worse, guess what happens? The revenue falls at an accelerating rate. So, I mean, as I often say, you know, cutting costs in the vain hope that somehow this will improve sales is so barking mad. You can't understand why every media company does it repeatedly. And then eventually they will get to the point, won't they, when they have fired so many people that there are no more costs to be eliminated. And then what are they going to do? Well, they're going to have to come up with a different plan. And my argument is, whatever that plan is going to be, why don't you do that one now before you destroy your product? It's a bit like hitting children, isn't it? Which is generally considered to be a bad thing. And the reason it's a bad thing is not so much to do with child cruelty, but is that if you smack your kid for misbehaving and it doesn't work, your option then is to smack the kid a bit harder and, until you kill the child. Or you arrive at the point where you think, this hitting my child thing isn't going very well. I'd better come up with another plan. And so the reason you don't hit your kids is because whatever that other plan is, you should be doing first. And it's the same. It's exactly the same with this um, uh, cost-cutting thing. And I think where people got it from is that in the good old days, when we used to have economic cycles that were you know, every seven years, you would know, well, if in the downturn I cut some of my costs in order to conserve some cash so that I can be ready for the upturn, that kind of makes sense. I had problems with it, actually, but you can sort of see that there's some logic in it. But we're not in that position. We're in a systemic change in the way in which media yeah. needs to be produced and is being consumed and all that stuff. And all the challenges around alternative facts and fake news and all of this is incredibly difficult. And yet we're still using that approach as if we were dealing with an economic cycle. Well, yeah, and then that's this, it's a short termism there that that's that's the problem because they're not looking well. They might be looking beyond the next quarter, but they're certainly not looking much further beyond the next quarter. Well, because they claim they do, don't they? They claim they 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 have a strategy. I mean, not that many years ago, that was called "We are going to be a digital first publisher." I still have absolutely no idea what that means because it doesn't speak to user needs. It doesn't speak to product product development. Media companies don't have product development people. You know, they just it just it just sort of emerges like some blob out of the quagmire. Um, you know, they don't think about well, what what really should the product be? Some years ago, when I was writing my column for the media briefing, I did some analysis on two of the publicly quoted companies who had this strategy and they would brag every uh, every results period about you know the growth in their digital advertising whilst at the same time accepting you know the decline in their legacy legacy media and i worked out that if you maintained the same rate of decline in the legacy media and that's probably optimistic and if you assumed that you could continue to get the same uh, rate per thousand for your online advertising, which is also difficult to believe in the light of experience. But let's let's give them that credit. And if you assume that um, you're going to not have more than I can't remember what it was, you know, four electronic ads, digital ads on each display page of content above the fold, uh, uh, what would the implications of that be? And the implications were that you would not get back to the revenue or profit position that you had been in 10 years ago for another 20 years, one, and your audience size was going to be about 2 billion. 
and uh, some of these were regional news uh, mm. publishers, not necessarily in the UK, uh, for the avoidance of identifying people. But um, and I'm not the brightest publisher ever to have walked the face of the earth. But even I can do simple arithmetic and work out that this strategy is not going to fix your problem. What is going to fix your problem is thinking more deeply about what the value proposition is in the product. Now, here's something contentious. If you buy a copy of The Times, and I've forgotten what the cover price of The Times is, a couple of quid, something like that, I can't remember. Uh, and you start flicking through how, and start tearing out how much of it you have no interest in whatsoever. When I had this problem, I'm not interested in football, so that's that. Most of the sports page is gone. Um, uh, I'm uh, I'm interested in British politics, but I'm not interested in fashion, and I'm not interested in travel advice. So we got rid of another. Heaven help me, what the court circuit is all about, and why I'd be interested in that. But the Times still publishes it, and I think there's four pages every day of stock and share prices and investment trust prices. What's the point of that? I mean, what, I mean, it's not even an effective way of uh, presenting that information. So, you know, we've gone past. We've probably lost eighty percent of the eighty percent of the value because we haven't thought about what the value proposition is or should be. All we've done is said we're going digital first, and we're going to take all this crap—not tons of crap, you know what I mean—all this stuff you know, off this platform and stick it on another platform, which makes absolutely no sense at all. It will be like being a baked bean manufacturer and saying, we're no longer going to put baked beans in a tin and sell them in a supermarket on a gondola, you know, with a shelf wobbler on the front. We're going to, we're going to have a mail order business and we're going to post baked beans in an envelope to our customers. Well, the beans are still the same, but it's a terrible misuse of the envelope and it actually destroys value because everybody's now got mushy baked beans all over their front doormat. And that's what the media industry has done. It's insane, and everybody does it. Do you th- you th- the product side of things is d- whether it's being done is definitely talked about more than it used to be. That's true. Yeah. That's true, uh, and I think what worries me though uh, is that as media companies hire product people, product managers, product development people, uh, that they don't really know how to manage them, and at the first sign of trouble. You know, they'll be the next in line behind the substance, you know, uh, and because they're not really committed to it, they're kind of hoping for some magical output that these people can invent, you know, something extraordinary, which will, you know, turn them into a unicorn business. And that's kind of not really how it works. If you really want to make it work, then product development has to be at the centre of your business, not at the periphery of the business. And that means it has to be sponsored by the board and by the the CEO, and it probably needs to be represented on the board. And at the board meeting, you should be spending 80% of your time talking about product development. And that doesn't happen in any board meetings that I've ever been to, so I'm guilty of it as well. Uh, Because otherwise, it's not going to make any difference. Uh, you know, you'll just end up with something that is an, either an incremental improvement or batshit crazy. Hmm. So, it's that's a, I mean, a lot of what you're saying is about leadership, right? Yeah. It's a leadership problem because there's loads and loads and loads of good people working in, in media, but there's a little bit of, it sounds like what you're describing is a little bit of this hamster wheel going on. They're doing all this stuff. 
and it's been undercut from the top. Yeah, and I think, to be fair to the leadership, I mean, particularly if you're a public company, the pressure, as you said earlier, um, to perform every quarter does make this kind of stuff difficult because there's a time lag, right? You can't can't run that kind of strategy and have it all fixed by, you know, the next the next quarter and, and that is a problem and you know my experience has been although in some quarters private equity has a bad reputation is that private money, private equity money is much better at giving the leadership the space to work through a proper t- strategy than uh, the public market investors are mm-hmm. uh, i mean that's not university too i think that's a slightly it's slightly more difficult in the US, uh, but certainly my experience here is, is that that has been that has been the case, and um, and that's one of the ways in which we were able to grow the business as rapidly as rapidly as we were. But I think the second problem must surely be to do with, in general terms, the quality of the leadership, because the point about leadership is not to get backed into a corner by whatever the circumstances are. Uh, the circumstances are around you. But I know it's a difficult job. I've been a CEO for you know, I don't know, 25, 30 years or something. Um, you know, and it's difficult. You know, and the, if, if it wasn't for the customers and the suppliers and the staff, the job would be easy. Uh, and so you've got all that stuff you know, rattling around. So you're, you're always busy. And you don't give yourself the headspace to think about these problems, actually step back from it and to think about what it is that really works. And in fact, actually, my period of consulting um, and unemployment was really useful. You know, taking that sabbatical forces it was, mm. but taking that sabbatical did enable me to get my head together about what I thought. And that's really hard to do um, if uh, you don't really, if you don't have the time. And it's very difficult to do if you don't really believe it. If you remember Google, when they first started, used to say to their staff that one day a week they could devote that entire day to anything mm-hmm. they wanted to think about, right? Which is brilliant. Uh, except they don't do it anymore. <laughs> but that idea of starting with a problem is really interesting. You know, I think so. Okay, so I'm a CEO. Imagine I'm a CEO. Yeah. I'm going to give myself a day a week to go off and think. Yeah. How, what do I, how do I frame that? How do I structure that time? What am I trying to do? Well, I think what you want to decide is which customers you want to serve and then find out what it, you know what it is. So if we talk about business to business, which is where I've spent most of my life, um, uh, although I'll give you a B2C example in a minute, um, but uh, if you think about business to business, one of the things you have to do is understand what your target audience does for a living. Right? And... and uh, Actually, both Rory and I both arrived at this independently, actually. But, you know, one of the most powerful things you can do is talk to people 10 minutes after they've used your product and 10 minutes before. Or better still, go and talk to these customers and just talk you know, talk me through what you do all day and be, you know, good at spotting spotting where the uh, where the friction is. But see, uh, spend enough time understanding the customers that they serve because they're corporate managers and they think that's something that other people will do. But it's your question about leadership, isn't it? That is what leadership is. It's setting strategy. That's what the prime minister thinks he's doing. These five people's priorities, you know, 
mean, it's not. It's, it's, it's pretending to do strategy, right? Uh, and it's pretending to believe that that's what everybody wants. Maybe some people do, but I don't know. There's no evidence for it, is there? Uh, and you're certainly not going to solve problems of halving inflation by just saying so. But it actually brings you back to that aphorism thing, doesn't it? It's it's really easy to say and it's really easy for people to remember yeah and maybe then you don't need to do anything because they think you're doing it because you said it <laughs> well and a lot of leadership does that i mean if you remember when um uh, uh um sly bailey was ceo of the mirror group uh, she had a mantra which i think other people have used i think uh, but but uh, i think she was the original but uh when she, when she took on that business she said stabilize revitalize grow uh i don't think in 25 years i don't think they've ever got really past stabilized but <laughs> but the problem with that is what does it mean i mean in a practical sense i'm one of your employees and you tell me to stabilize revitalize and grow how in what way with what you know with what resources to which set of customers on what platform to solve what problem uh and uh, so that by its very nature these things are so it's the curse of the mission statement, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right? And leaders love them, right? And pay McKinsey lots of money to come and uh, to come and help them out. Uh, and you end up with something which says, you know, "We aim to exceed the expectations of our customers through the over delivery of uh, you know, best quality product and be a leading purveyor uh, of whatever it is we do in the world, or something." I mean, they're all they're all the same. Well, that's very interesting. But what is what's that all about? And what does it mean? And how does it change anything? And the CEO goes, "My work here is done. I shall roll this strategy out around <laughs> around the company, uh, and then I shall wait for the results to come in." And of course, they never do. I can actually tell, I do this with everybody, but if it's interesting, I will tell you at the end, the piece of information which every CEO should know, which says going to business school, which when you hear it, is so extraordinary, it will make you cry. <laughs> I've seen grown men and women cry when I told them. A classic buzz, BuzzFeed hit sound, <laughs> that one. <laughs> what happened next? Yeah. <laughs> this happened and everybody says the same thing. Um, so, uh, but the, the when we, without talking about how we, the, the theory behind it, when we started to run a pricing strategy, we we didn't do it. What we did, right, we spend two, a couple of days with literally everybody in the business, everybody, um, effectively reprogramming how they thought about the impact of price uh, right. and how they considered it. And then they came up with the strategy of what to do with it what to do about it and i must have done this in half a dozen businesses in my life and it has never failed to make a dramatic improvement in profitability and it's also very quick and the beautiful thing about that is is it piles some more cash onto your balance sheet so that you can invest more in the product development which we discussed earlier was probably underdone in in most media companies if you do the reverse and you say i will push my profit up by cutting my costs then you're making the product a bit worse and the impact of it on your business is incredibly temporary because as you cut the cost the revenue tends to decline to catch up with it Um, and interestingly when businesses get into trouble the sales director will normally go to the ceo and he'll say something like boss we've got a problem I know you like this pricing thing, but uh, the market's really tough out there. And there's more competition than ever before. Customers are cutting their budgets because they're under under pressure. You know, I'm 
I just can't close a deal unless you let me cut the price. And the CEOs always effectively give in. And then, you know, if you've got a 10% margin business and you cut the price by 10%, mm. you'll no longer have any profit and you're no longer generating any cash. So then the CEO panics and goes and fires some journalists in the world. Uh, and then the product gets a bit worse and the sales director gives you more panic because people are not buying anymore because the product's crap. And you think, you did this to yourselves. <laughs> and and then everyone says, oh, well, it's the, it's the internet, it's the competition. Um, I've worked with 300 sales managers and sales directors in my life and every single one of them has told me that it's the other lot that cut prices, not us. <laughs> That's a great place to end. Except you need to give me this uh, business school hack. Oh, okay. So um, it's just one of the weird things. Let's imagine you run a 10% margin business. I'm not going to do all the maths for you because we'll be here all day, but you're just going to have to trust me with this and, and uh, I'll show it to you on a piece of paper when we when we have a beer one day. But uh, let's imagine you've got a 10% margin business. So revenue is 100, profit is 10 uh, and uh, the chairman of the board says, we're not making enough money. I want you to improve the profits by 25%, uh, and, and I want this to happen immediately. And you go, oh, crying out loud, you know, give me a target that's reasonable, will you? But then the smart CEO goes, yeah, that's, that's an absolute walk in the park, because it turns out that if you cut your cost by 1%, and despite what I said about costs, everybody could find cost efficiency of 1% in everything that they do. You could in your household budget, right? It's not, it's not difficult. Um, you improve income by 1%. Well, okay, selling more is quite difficult, but there's definitely things that you can do, I'm sure, to find a bit more efficiency out of your salespeople because they're not 100% efficient. So we can improve sales productivity by 1%. Uh, and if we improve price by 1%, or the average price by 1%, not necessarily putting the prices up, maybe by reducing the discount by 1%, whatever, but anyway, price by 1%. Those three things on their own improve your profit by 25%. 1%. A 1% improvement in the quality of your thinking will improve your profits by 25%. Yeah, I need to see the, I need to see the maths on that. Easy. <laughs> I, I, trust me, it is right. I, I, I do it, but it takes about... It takes about you see, you, even you're going, that can't be true, right? <laughs> it can't, can't be true. But I promise you it is. I promise oh, it's insane. Uh, and, and people don't understand this stuff and and it's basic you know it's basic simple arithmetic <laughs> oh brilliant thank you so much thanks for taking the time that's alright it's fun So thanks very much again to Neil for coming on this first episode of our Big Noises series. And thanks one more time to Glide Publishing Platform for their support. And as mentioned, if you want to know more about what life without having to build a CMS looks like, you can check out gpp.io. But Peter, what is next for Media Voices and Big Noises? So our next big noise is Amy Keane. If you follow any uh, like marketing LinkedIn or marketing Twitter, you might know Amy from there. But my starting point with Amy was she talks a lot about being weird, her <laughs> being weird, other people being weird, why it's important to be weird. And we're just getting in this conversation. Like, does publishing need more weirdos? Oh, in the sense that one hundred percent. Well, there's just so many kind of cookie cutter products out there. Mm. Who was it? Was it um, Shingy? Oh, <laughs> yeah, he was weird. He was weird, yeah. Look, a rocket. <laughs> but, 
But if you listen to Amy next, next <laughs> week, she'll explain why that's a good thing. And though we're not going to be doing traditional news roundups for the series, you can keep abreast of everything that's going on, all the news and views from around the media world, by signing up to our daily newsletter. That goes out five days a week and contains the four most important stories that you need to know to stay abreast of everything that's going on. You can sign up to that by going to Voices.media. So please do check out Voices.media. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Neil for taking part. And Peter, thank to you for putting big noises together. Yeah, no, it's been fun. It's been, it's been really good fun. Thanks for doing the edit. <laughs> yeah, no, well, that's been fun as well. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye bye.